Hi, it's Eric again. If it feels like I'm always asking you for money, it's because I'm always asking you for money. That's because producing a high-quality podcast like Making Gay History costs a lot. Between ten dollars and $20,000 for each episode, for the audio and all the extra resources and archival photos you'll find on our website. One way to help us keep bringing LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it is to join our Patreon community, $5 a month or $60 a year. And for that, you get a front row seat to my interviews with present-day history makers, behind-the-scenes production conversations, and delicious clips from my archive that we couldn't include in regular episodes. Right now, we have 200 Patreon followers. That's just a fraction of our many thousands of listeners. Can you help us double that by the 55th anniversary of Stonewall this coming Pride Month? We can't do what we do without all our supporters. And if you aren't one already, I hope you will be soon. Or, if you are already, get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. That's patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. By the time I sat down to interview the dynamic duo Phyllis Lyon and Del Martin in 1989, I thought I knew a lot about them because of their decades-long and high-profile roles as LGBTQ civil rights activists. Phil and Del founded Daughters of Belitis in 1955, the first organization for lesbians. Their names and faces kept popping up in my research. Phyllis with her black ponytail, big glasses, and megawatt smile, Del with her round face, heavy-lidded eyes, and silver, close-cropped hair. From recorded interviews, I knew their voices, too. Phil's was full of smoke. Dell's was a smoother grade of gravel, the volume always kept on a whispery low. Phyllis and Dell found each other while working at the same magazine in Seattle in 1950. Three years later, on Valentine's Day, 1953, they moved into an apartment on Castro Street in San Francisco. The Castro was a very different neighborhood back then, working class, Catholic, very straight. While Phyllis and Dell had each other, they longed to find community. And that longing led them to plant the seeds of a national social movement. There's one thing you need to know before you hear Phyllis and Dell speak for themselves. I asked them a dumb question about their relationship based on a stereotype I'm not sure I even believed in. I still cringe when I hear myself asking them about their, quote, classic butch-femme relationship. Fortunately for me, Phyllis and Dell were tolerant of what I didn't know and were very patient in helping me understand what I needed to learn. So here's the scene. Across the kitchen table from me sit Phil and Dell. They look just like their pictures, maybe a bit older. Phyllis is 64, Dell is 68. I clip a microphone to each of their blouses and press record. Interview with Dale Martin and Phyllis Lyon, Thursday, July 27th, 1989. Tape one, side one. So if you just introduce yourself by name. Okay, I'm Phyllis Lyon. And I'm Dale Martin. Who knew about homosexuals? Uh, 
Um, even lesbian, we didn't know those terms. Um, so here you are feeling this, whatever it is, but you don't know even how to define it. You, so that was what was happening. Everybody thought, I am the only one. So it wasn't as if you could go to the library. Once you had the word, you could go to the library. Yeah, but they didn't have anything anyhow then. Then all you found out was that you were illegal, immoral, and sick. <laughs> So this was, this was hardly a superb foundation for the beginning of a massive nationwide gay rights movement. <laughs> well, not even for feeling good about yourself, right? <laughs> I think the things that we were working on in the 50s, and the Daughters of Belitis anyway, was trying to build our self-esteem. I mean, to begin to see that we were okay in spite of being faced with, as Phyllis said, being immoral, illegal, and sick. sick. I mean, that's heavy duty for a lot of people. And you had the uh, purges and you know, the State Department and government. And then there were the raids of the gay bars, there were the purges in the armed services. What was life like for the two of you around when DOB started? Uh, your relationship, uh, the dynamic of your relationship, I understand, was, was the classic butch femme relationship. Um, well, I don't know about classic. <laughs> if I stumble over words, please tell me. It's new stuff for me, too. I mean, for me, I should say that too. But. It didn't work for us, no matter how we tried. I mean, it was true that Dale tended to light my cigarettes, okay? But uh, that was as much as she got sometimes. <laughs> that she doesn't drive, and I did. You know, she didn't drive the nails in, and I did. She didn't do any of these I'm not at all butch things. But, you're so, but that's what you're supposed to, this is the relationship you thought you're supposed to have. Yeah, right. I remember thinking, well, now let's see, I've got to get up and get Dale's breakfast every morning because that's what Mother did for Dad, right? So I did that for a week. Forget it. <laughs> <laughs> None of these things really worked for us. And I suspect that was true for most couples. Uh, were there role models for you at all? Certainly there were no guys. No, well, see, I did, yeah, and I didn't know really much of anything. I mean, I just had met this person three and a half years before, and she said she was a lesbian, and I thought that was the most fascinating thing I ever heard. And then when I thought about it, it explained a lot about the fact that I had been really attracted to women in high school and et cetera, et cetera, but I didn't, and still was, but I didn't really have a clue as to what that was all about. And we didn't know anybody, you know, and so we knew about the bars in North Beach, and we went down there. And we were very shy, and so we sort of Sat were more like tourists going to the bars and watching everybody and wondering <laughs> how we fit in. Um, anyway, uh, we did meet a couple of men who lived around the corner gay from men. us, gay men. So we became friends with them. They were in a Bush family relationship. And, uh, <laughs> and Jerry was a bartender. And uh, Ricky was very offended. He used to he used to dress and drag. He and I dress, used to dress alike sometimes. We'd go out Halloween and stuff like that. And uh, he stayed home. He didn't work, did he? I don't remember. So Jerry was supporting him, and he stayed home to care of the house and cat. And Jerry introduced us to this couple, lesbians. And they suggested getting together? To start this organization. They, well, yeah, Nani called. She called us NASA's if we wanted to get involved. And we thought, great, now we can meet some other lesbians. <laughs> that was our 
main focus. You, this was, you were not thinking, we're going to start a national movement. Oh, no. <laughs> we were just going to meet some lesbians. And start a social club. That's yeah. what they said. You want I mean, it was a Sunday September afternoon, and we were cleaning house. And where would we have gotten the idea about starting a national movement <laughs> in September of 1955? And, uh, and the idea was, was what? Yeah, you know, to have a social club, a secret social club. Secret meaning secret membership, secret everything. Yeah. Nani was like into it. a sort of a structure, you know. And yeah. And she was also the one that came up with the name, Daughters of Leaders. Because she had read, seen this book, um, and it was a long narrative, a lesbian poem. And um, Belitis was supposed to have lived at the time of Sappho. And it could appear like we were just like any other women's lodge. So you didn't think of naming yourselves the, the Lesbian Dancing Club? Or... <laughs> Not hardly. You know, it wasn't until 1964 that there was an organization that used the word homosexual, gay, or lesbian or something in it. And the idea was that by calling ourselves the Daughters of Belitis, and people would, lesbians would know what it meant, and uh, nobody else would. I don't think that was true of lesbians because none of us, except Nani, had ever seen this poem. But uh, yeah. <laughs> anyhow, that didn't occur to us then either. So something that started as a group, a social group of eight women, evolved. I'm trying to get a sense of this. Did you talk about the the place of, of lesbians in the world, uh, the challenges of being gay, dealing with family? Uh, well, eventually we talked about all of those things. <laughs> Mostly on a personal level. How do you deal with your family? How do you solve this problem or that? Or Should I tell my parents? How do I tell my parents? You hadn't told your parents. No, no. Not many people told their parents in those days. And um, one of the problems, too, if you were underage, parents would you know, take you to a shrink. Or they could have you institutionalized. And underage was under 21 in those yeah. days, too. A lot of women came to DOB who had been uh, either abandoned by their families or had been had electroshock therapy or had been thrown into mental institutions or who had escaped from mental institutions. <laughs> At some point, uh, you decided to go ahead with a more activist approach, and there were women who wanted the group to remain a social organization. What happened then? Well, of the eight of us, there was a split, four and four. And the four wanted strictly secret social club. And the other four was for branching out more. And so the four who wanted secret social club started another one. So and I, then the other two women that had been original founders moved to Reading. In the process of, of discussing and talking and so on, and, and over a period of time, that I don't remember exactly, we said, all right, we would like to educate the public about the realities of lesbianism, only we didn't say it in that word, yeah. but the, about the truth about lesbianism. By this time, we had more members. Yeah. Yeah. Dozens? A hundred? Oh. oh, no, we never got to a hundred. Um, probably a little over a dozen or 15 yeah, or something. Yeah, so, something like that. This, this organization was so fragile that Dell and I were like peer counselors to every member. And, it, and we'd stop and pick them up to bring them to the meetings. If anybody had a problem, we ran over to pat their heads. 
Um, well, there was a few of us, and, and it was so scary. And the, and the times, there was nothing but fear out there. What were people fearful of? What of losing their jobs, of losing their jobs, losing, losing their, their families, families, losing their minds. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Could they I mean, really? Too? Could they be thrown out of their apartments? Sure, sure, sure. Could be thrown out of their apartments, and I think they had, they were. They could certainly lose their jobs, and they had. The thing I guess we stressed in the beginning was. DOB was an alternative to the, to the bars that were no. being raided. Bar people thought, you know, we, we were, were terrible. crazy. They thought, <laughs> well, first, there were all kinds of rumors, right? DOB was for couples only. or, And then there was the one about we had orgies. And then, when the and then we, we were communists, communists, right? And uh, those are the three that come to mind. Yeah. Did they resent you because you were causing trouble or potentially were going to cause trouble for them? I don't think that was the bar dykes. That was the, the upscale lesbians yeah. that uh, wished we'd shut up. I think there's still some of those around. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> I mean, they had been happily living as two, two women together, et cetera, et cetera, and then all of a sudden... Um, well, later, anyhow, there's publicity and people are talking about lesbians and they're saying there's two women living together and they're scared to death. Yeah, I remember there was a bar in the 60s in the inner sunset uh, called Finn Alley and there were go-go girls <laughs> and we figured, you know, this place is going to get raided. Uh, it was it packed. It was just packed, packed all the time. So we, it was one time, I guess Phyllis was talking to this woman and said, she couldn't be involved with DOB. She was a teacher. I mean, they knew we're standing, and the go-go girls are go-go-going up here on the bar. Other, the place is packed. We're standing in the middle, and she's telling me this. Knowing who you are? Or? Yeah, we've been talking about DOB. I yeah. She's saying, oh, couldn't possibly. You know, it's, again, it's sort of like somebody might find out I'm a lesbian. Yeah. They're never going to find it out in this bar. <laughs> Nobody will ever know. But, but they felt safe didn't in the bar, sense. but not... Didn't make, any, didn't yeah. make any sense. No. Was it frustrating for you at all? Was it yeah, it seemed yeah. rather frustrating. We got, didn't sound very logical to us. We got very frustrated. On the other hand, you know, we also realized that people had to do things at their own pace and yeah. so on and so forth. You were already had contact at this point with Manashee. Yeah. yeah, we discovered them shortly after DLB got started, but not before, which everybody seems to think we came along as the women's auxiliary. Did you go to one of their meetings? Yeah. Yeah. Is that what we were you welcomed? Yeah, because they welcomed women. They had a couple of straight women that were working with them, mothers, somebody's mother. So was managing a, a help to, to DOB? I think it was a help to us in the sense that they were ahead of us, okay? So they had done things that we hadn't had yet to do. Like? <laughs> uh, well, like conferences and, mm -hmm. you know, stuff like that. And so... We learned from their mistakes. They were helpful in that they had offices, and they let us share a very tiny little office and have a desk or something uh, for a while. There were a couple of, who was it who told me? I think Dorwin Jones who said that he was an SOB. Yes. Mm -hmm. So there were uh, a son of believers. Son of believers. Mm -hmm. there were, so there were some early male members. They weren't really members. members. Yeah. They, they, we started see, out in 1960 when we had our first convention. And we just thought it would be kicky to well, honor they, some of the men who had helped us. And, and then also 
there was a little innuendo about SOBs because right. some of them really were too. Uh, <laughs> right. Some were really. We got a lot of flack because we were quote unquote a segregated organization. Yeah. You know, from the beginning, uh, the idea was to have an organization for women so they could dance together and be social and meet each other and be safe and that kind of thing. So, you know, it was didn't have anything to do with not liking men or anything like that. It was just this was the idea of the organization. Well, it became obvious in that uh, the concerns that gay men had in those days had to do with tea room entrapment, um, you know, changing the sex laws and, and, and stuff that really was all around sexual activity. And the concerns that lesbians had had to do more with civil stuff. Had to do with loss of jobs, had to do with children, loss of children and, and dealing with children. Custody. Had to do with, you know, maintaining relationships and stuff like that. Didn't have to do with the fact that they were down in public toilets. It did seem like there were better ways that men could manage their penises than the way they were managing <laughs> it. That has come and gone over the years. That so I think at times we got a little disgusted with their toilet habits. Yeah, like, <laughs> Or lack of toilet training, I think. <laughs> yeah, lack of toilet training. All right, well, getting back to all the fears, you know, it was, I guess, in the 70s that we learned that DOB had been infiltrated by CIA and FBI and those. Yes, and they had reports on this. And um, like uh, one report was uh, when I made a, a reservation at the. Uh, Clark Hotel. Clark Hotel in Los Angeles for about 14 for breakfast. Big deal. Big deal. We were looking to try Don't and think interest that's women in a, in a DOB chapter in L.A. What year was this? It was in the Historic. 50s. There was a lot of that going on. We found out that for the convention in New York, oh, somebody that. from Ohio had reported to the FBI that Doris release was planning a convention in New York City in 64. Um, At the New York New, New, Yorker, New Yorker Hotel. hotel. Yeah. New Yorker, New Yorker Hotel. Yeah. And the FBI couldn't find us. They went to talk to people at New Yorker and and that, that deal had fallen through. And actually where we held it was at the Barbizon Plaza. Plaza. And, and it was in the New York Times. <laughs> That time, that was. But the FBI hadn't found us, and I just loved that. 1989, Grand Marshals. <laughs> was this the first time you were Grand Marshals for the parade? Yeah. Well, first one here. Looking back to your eight women sitting in a living room, <laughs> <laughs> very frightening. Yeah. Um, you must have some thought. You must have just. You must marvel. At the transformation. Well, we've been marveling at the transformation for quite a while. We have marveled at it so many times. Like, never in our wildest dreams could we have conceived of any of this when we were starting out with DOB, when we were trying to be very secretive and just to meet And people. very proper. I mean, you know, yeah. like... DOB was a good coming out place. And where women could get their act together and find out who they were and, and be able to talk to others and hash it out. We felt that people get themselves together and they can go out and cope with the world. <laughs> yeah, we were trying to help oh, yeah. uh, lesbians find themselves, you know. I mean, you don't. 
I can't have a movement if you don't have people that see that they're worthwhile. <laughs> Phyllis Lyon and Del Martin's work didn't end with the Daughters of Belitis. They had a long career of activism that included their work with the National Organization for Women, the Alice B. Toklas Democratic Club, and they fought for the rights of senior citizens. In 1989, they joined Old Lesbians Organizing for Change, and in 1995, they were named delegates to the White House Conference on Aging. The two women were also outspoken in the fight for marriage equality, and when they had the chance to legally marry, they did. Twice. First, in 2004, when the then-mayor of San Francisco, Gavin Newsom, ordered that marriage licenses be granted to same-sex couples. The California Supreme Court closed that window after two months and voided the marriages. They tied the knot a second time on June 16, 2008, when the California Supreme Court ruled that same-sex marriage was legal. Both times, Phyllis and Dell were the first couple in line to be married. Dell was actually married three times. Back when she was 19 years old, she had married a man and had a daughter, Kendra Mon. That marriage ended in divorce after four years. And given the times, Dell didn't even think to try to keep custody of her daughter. At Dell and Phil's second wedding, Kendra and her husband Eugene sat in the front row. Dell Martin, her full name, Dorothy Louise Taliaferro Martin, died on August 27, 2008, with her legal wife of two months, Phyllis Ann Lyon, at her side. She was 87. San Francisco's mayor ordered that the flags at City Hall be flown at half-mast in her honor. Phyllis still lives in the Noe Valley house she shared with Dell. Making Gay History is a team effort. Thank you to executive producer Sarah Birmingham and audio engineer Ann Pope. We had production assistance from Josh Gwynn. Our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers. Thank you also to our social media strategist, Will Coley, our webmaster, Jonathan Dozer-Ezel, researchers Bronwyn Pardis and Zachary Seltzer, and thank you to our intrepid photo editor, Michael Green. A very special thank you to our guardian angel, Jenna Weiss-Berman. The Making Gay History podcast is a co-production of Pineapple Street Media with assistance from the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division and One Archives at the USC Libraries. Season three of this podcast is made possible with funding from the Ford Foundation, which is on the front lines of social change worldwide. And if you like what you've heard, go ahead and write a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews really help other folks find us. And if you haven't subscribed yet, go to makinggayhistory.com for a full list of options. That's also where you'll find all our episodes, including photographs, notes, and links to additional information about the many people we've featured in Making Gay History. So long, until next time. <laughs>